Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Awesome. Well, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are closing out the Encounters with Jesus series where we've been walking through the book of Matthew together. Uh, our hope is that as you've read the Bible alongside of us, you've encountered Jesus and have been moved by him and drawn to him, and, and now that you desire to become more like him. Uh, but I hope that as you've been reading through the book of Matthew, you, you recognize that Jesus challenges our assumptions about God. Whatever you were thinking about God may not have been who God actually was as God was sent forth in Christ, that Jesus made us come, uh, like, reckon with this is what God is like. Maybe you didn't think God liked to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Maybe you didn't think God liked to challenge the religious leaders. Maybe you didn't think that God had the power to heal and raise the dead and all these things. And so he challenges our assumptions about what God is like. And so today in Matthew 28, Jesus isn't just going to challenge our assumptions about God. He's going to turn and challenge our assumptions about the church. So if you have your Bible, would you stay in Matthew 28 uh, as Carmel just read? Uh, I don't know if you caught that. Like the chief priests and religious leaders of the day, this isn't in my sermon. They like, these guys were tasked with teaching about God and leading people to God. And they see the resurrection and they pay off the guards to say, let's act like it didn't happen. Like just now I was like moved by that. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that was their go-to move instead of, wow, God raised him from the dead. Instead of like, let's shut this whole thing down. Uh, it didn't work so well, right? Uh, the guards were supposed to guard the tomb and the angels just showed up and moved the stone and the guards didn't do their job. So uh, epic fail for the guards on that, on that day. So uh, Matthew 28, we're going to look at some of our held assumptions about the church, because I, I don't know if you realize this or if you walk in this, but you come into church with a lot of assumptions. And, and some of those have been informed by scripture. Some of those have been informed by our upbringing. You have expectations when you walk in church, and some of those are great expectations, uh, and some of those are not so great expectations. And so we have to do as a church some unlearning and some relearning when it comes to who we are as the people that God's designed us to be. Uh, and as the Rim Church, we're only a year and a half old. Uh, our family's only been here for three months. And so we are asking God, God, what do you have for us? What, what are you asking us to do? And the scriptures are going to inform that. So uh, before we get to the, the uh, founding vision of the church in Matthew 28, we have to look at the inauguration of the church in Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he asks this question, who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, most important question in the history of humankind in the whole world right there. Who do you say that I am? And they said, well, or who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, some people say the prophets, and then Jesus turns and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Asking his disciples. And Peter steps forward and says, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, the, the sustainer, designer, creator of all things. And in verse 17, Jesus responds, in Matthew 16, he responds this. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The world did not know this word until this moment. I will build my ecclesia. 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In Matthew 16, Jesus introduces the term ecclesia, the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. This is a profound picture. This is a profound vision. Jesus is saying this. Peter, people are going to confess the same truth that you just confessed, that I am the son of the living God. I am the sustainer and salvation of all things. People are going to confess that. And then I'm going to build something out of the people that confess that truth. And the reason that I'm here is to to save people and to build people and to send people. And they're going to be unstoppable in the world. And the gates of hell will not prevail against them. They don't stand a chance. They are about as good as those guards when the angels showed up at the tomb. Like, it ain't going to go well for them. They don't stand a chance. Now, that instantly challenges an assumption about what we have about church. Because growing up, for me, it's like the church played defense. The church was just the place where you go to stay away from the big, bad world, and you couldn't cuss here, and you couldn't listen to this kind of music, and you couldn't dance, and you couldn't spit, and you couldn't chew, and like, just don't, 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 don't. Like, I grew up under the gospel of don't. I don't know about you. (laughs) Like, what's the good news? Just don't do anything. Don't. Whatever you're thinking, like, probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. No fun. That's, yeah. And go to church a lot. Don't do anything else. But the picture here is that we're on offense, that the church is actively going into the world, and the gates of hell are on defense. The gates of hell are pushing away from the church. Uh, I did a, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in a Catholic church, then a Southern Baptist church. Then I went to a charismatic church for like six years because my mom liked it. Uh, and in this charismatic church, they would sing this song. Uh, and the name of the song was, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. Isn't that a line right there? <laughs> like, we would sing that. And I'm like, that's, that's biblically accurate. We go to the enemy's camp. We take back what he stole from us. We are on offense. And this is the picture that Jesus gives. And so a couple, weeks, uh, a couple months ago, we preached this Gather to Scatter, uh, the six principles sermon series, the six practices of the rim. And Gather to Scatter was one of those sermons. And in that, we, we offered you a definition of the church based on Matthew 16. And here it is. It's kind of wordy, kind of clunky, but you get to know me. You know, I like precision over efficiency. So not a great sentence, but it's got a lot of stuff in there. So here it is. What is the church? We are a God-revealed group of people. What did Jesus say? God revealed that to you, Peter. A God-revealed group of people, bought by Jesus, didn't get in on our own. He paid for us, built by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish a mission that the gates of hell will not prevail against. One more time, mouthful of stuff. A God-revealed group of people, bought by Jesus, built by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish a mission the gates of hell will not prevail against. Now, the problem is the word ecclesia means gathering, and oftentimes we have, we have made the church mean this gathering because the word ecclesia means gathering, and it's a misunderstanding of the word ecclesia because it doesn't mean gathering. It really means gathered ones, not gathering, the gathered ones. It doesn't mean the event of the church. It means the gathered ones around the event of the resurrection, that God has gathered us together and he's building something out of us, and he scatters us in the world to, to overcome the gates of hell. That's the spirit of the word ecclesia, that we're gathered to scatter. And we talked about that a couple of months ago. But again, many of the assumptions about church uh, look like this. I want to give you two of the main assumptions about church that, that were also in that gathered to scattered sermon. But I, I want to repeat them because I think they're living inside of us. 
the first assumption that people have about the church is what's called the heritage view of the church. And this is the, the church is where certain religious things happen. That's the view of the church. That there's a town out there and there's not a building where religious things happen. And so we're going to plant a church. And the marks of the heritage view are, I go to this place and the Bible is taught correctly. That's the place where they offer the Lord's Supper. That's the place where they do baptism. That's the place where I can hear teaching. And so it's a place where certain things happen, understanding that, that this is the essence of the whole church, that we gather there for religious things. If I have religious needs, I go there. That's the heritage view. And so if you ask someone, uh, do you follow Jesus? They would say, well, my grandma goes to this church. And so I'm guilty by association. That's the heritage view of the church. Sorry, this is teaching more than preaching. I'm going to preach in a minute. We're just teaching right now. We're going to get there, okay? Just yes, yes. We're, we're unfolding a story. It's a little boring at the beginning. The heritage view, I go there and stuff happens. Now, some of you have that assumption. I love you. you got, you're here under that assumption. We're in a gym and it's kind of like a little trendy, but it's the same assumption, right? I go there and this is where the religious stuff happens and Jesus challenges that assumption. And then the second assumption is the contemporary view of the church. And this is that the church is a vendor of religious goods and services. We, we dispose religious things and we compete with every other church in town to have the best religious things. And you are a consumer and you get to decide where you go. Uh, my, my family, we bought a house with a hot tub. I've never had a hot tub before. I don't know what to do with a hot tub. My father-in-law's had a hot tub. He says, you have to take some water to a place. And, and I get online and I'm like, I am a customer for someone who could sell me chemicals. Who in San Antonio would like my business? Superior Pools, you get a chance. 365 Pool Spa, you get a chance. Leslie's Pool Supply, you get a chance. But who did I ultimately go to? The one right beside HEB, because I was in HEB and I saw them, and I went there. I took them some water. They are a dispensary of pool and spa chemicals. I was a customer seeking those things, and so I went there. Uh, what grocery store do you go to? Are you a Trader Joe's person? Are you a Walmart? Are you Target? Are you H-E-B? Are you Costco? That, that's the kind of thing that the church is also doing that. So under this perspective, members are viewed as customers. You hear that? Members are viewed as customers. And religious goods and services are propagated. And churchgoers expect that we would provide a wide range of religious services, such as great worship music, great preaching, where I've got to be one part comedian, one part TED talk, one part prophet, one part enough to where you talk back to me, if that's your thing. Like, I got to be all of that stuff. Drew's got to be all of that stuff. We're trying. We're trying. <clears throat> great parenting seminars, great small groups. And if we don't do those things, you'll go to another church that does it better. And the moment you get bored with us, you'll just leave. Puts an immense amount of pressure on church leaders to constantly do the thing that makes you want to stick around. And subtly, it makes sermons about you. It even makes the Bible about you, God help us. That you then read the Bible about how you can feel better about yourself. God help us. And this is, this is happening all around. And it's made the church an institution that, that exists for the benefit of his members when Jesus designed the church to be the one institution in the world that doesn't exist for the benefit of his members. It exists to scatter into the world. So now we find ourselves in Matthew 28 where Jesus challenges our assumption about the church. So let's read these last two verses together. And by the way, this is it. Like Matthew 28 is 
It's powerful. This is the end of the book. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These men and women who followed Jesus had spent three years with him and they loved him and they'd seen him heal, they'd seen him teach, they'd, they'd see him be falsely accused, they'd see him be publicly crucified, they'd see him be laid in the tomb and resurrected from the dead and they have him back and instantly when they have him back, the first thing he tells them is all authority is mine, proven in the resurrection. The cross wrote a check, the resurrection said the bank can cash the check. All authority is mine. And now I give it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. This is the founding vision of the ecclesia. This is is Jesus' heart for the ecclesia. And it's not a heritage view. It's not a contemporary view. It is a missionary people view. So the missionary people is this, that the church is a people saved and sent by God to participate in his redemptive mission in the world. The nature of the church, rooted in the very nature of God, is missionary. Is missionary. The founding vision of the church is that disciples would learn to live in the identity and the understanding of being people who are saved to be sent. Jesus never told us to go and create converts or to start doing religious organizations. He told us to go and to make disciples and to bring the kingdom wherever we find ourselves. But that's the vision. So I'm going to teach one more thing, and then I'll preach. Okay, almost there. So this is where churches get it confused. You have Jesus. We're going, to, we're going to use some fancy words here. Christology. What you think about Jesus matters. And then the next thing, Matthew 28, moves to his miss, mission, missiology. What you think about the nature of the church. And that finally leads to ecclesiology, which is how the church organizes based on the mission that Jesus has given us. But churches get this, they, they get this twisted. Let, let me give you an example. If you put missiology first, here's what we're about as a church, and you follow that by ecclesiology, how we design based on how we are, uh, you know, what we care about, and then you add Jesus on the end, what you get is you reduce the church to a social gospel. It's happening everywhere, everywhere. So we are a church that exists to bring clean water to this place. We are a church that exists to stop sex trafficking. We are a church that exists for racial reconciliation. By the way, three amazing things that we should care a lot about. But if you get those out of order, then you find yourself rallied around a cause, not rallied around a Christ. And that's happening. And subtly you lose Christ along the way because all you were really about was this other thing. So you might as well just be a 501c3 and go for that. But stop calling yourself the church. Because it's not the church. It's not the church. And that's not the only way it gets mixed up. Let's say you switch these two and you put ecclesiology first. How we do church is the most important thing to us. We're going to get perfect at how we do church. And then it will be our mission to propagate how we do church amongst everybody else. Oh, and also we love Jesus. And what you find yourself in that is you've reduced the church to lifeless conservatism, which is, by the way, happening everywhere. Christian nationalism happening everywhere, that this is how we do church. We preach politics. We preach this. If you don't vote for this guy, you're a bad person. If you don't care about this, you're a bad person. And this is what we do the most. And our mission is to gather around other churches that do that and to find people that follow that. Oh, and by the way, like Jesus too. Like he's, yeah, of course. Yeah, Jesus. No, 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 no. You find that everywhere. 
that this is the most important thing. It's fascinating to, to have asked the early disciples if any of them struggled with Roman nationalism. You guys struggling with like worshiping Rome? No, they weren't. Why? Because they had a greater allegiance to a capital K king who sat on an eternal throne who had given them an earthly mission. And so it matters how we get this lined up. So as the rim, as, as, as Drew and I have processed this for many years together, we've come to see the beauty of Christology, followed by missiology, followed by ecclesiology. And this releases the church to bring the kingdom in the world. In other words, our first priority as pastors is to discern a robust Christology of who is Jesus and what was he about. Who is Jesus and what was he about? And then based on understanding who is Jesus and who was he about, then we get our mission, Matthew 28. We get the marching orders from our great king. And then from the marching orders, we design a church that lives into the mission that Jesus has given us. So in other words, the church is always subservient to Jesus and his mission. Always. Each church in the world does not get to decide its mission. You can't look at Jesus and say, we don't do discipleship. That you don't have that option. You can't look at Jesus and say, we don't do church planting. I wish every church in San Antonio made disciples and planted churches. I don't know if they do. I just moved here. You can tell me later how that's going. I'm learning. But I know this. We aren't pastors of every church in San Antonio. We've been asked to, to shepherd and lead by God's grace this group. And so we have got to say we have a mission given to us by Jesus that we are being faithful to. So if you don't like disciple making, you have to take that up with Jesus, not Drew. That's, and you should, by the way. Jesus would love to have that conversation with you. He's so great. Jesus is the best. He would totally love you through that conversation. Pray about that. See what happens in your heart. When you pray, you go, Jesus, I just don't want to make other people like you. I just don't want to do that. Just talk to him. It'd be great activity this afternoon. Go on a walk. Pray that out. So we come together as a group of people who are equipped in prayer and worship and study, and we care about sex trafficking and racial reconciliation and, and, and clean water. We care about all that stuff, but we care about it in proper order. And so uh, missiologist Leslie Newbegin, he, he says this. He says, the church is the bearer to all nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom. Man. The church is the bearer of all nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign, the sovereignty of God. It is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. So you did not get saved from the big bad world so that you could be safe in the church. You got saved from the big bad world so that you could be equipped and then sent back into the big bad world to tell them about the God who saves. That's the design. And that's the founding vision of the church. So you go, okay, great, Josh, cool class you just put us through. Now, what does that mean? Here, here, here are three or four things that it means for us. Some of that we need to understand, and then some of that we need to live. So practically, here we go. Christology, number one. This means that Jesus is the outworking of the missionary nature of the eternal triune God. Jesus is the outworking of the missionary nature of the eternal triune God. Now, that may seem a little confusing, but let me, let me explain this to you um, in a way that helped me. It's like I've, been, I've probably been following Jesus like 23 years or something like that. And it's just been in the last few years that like 
the Holy Spirit went into my mind and like flipped on a light switch and was like, hey, watch, look at this again. And I was like, how has that been there the whole time? And I didn't even know. So here's what I mean. For me, growing up in Texas, uh, becoming like Jesus was always framed around being holy, which is good because he's holy. Or it was always framed around like reading your Bible and praying and intimacy with God. Like the more you want to become like Jesus, the more you do spiritual things. Or again, like stop sinning, be more holy. But listen, rarely did I hear that living a sent life was what it meant to become like Jesus. I only heard learning things and being holy is what it meant like Jesus. And evangelism was that really scary thing I had to do uh, to get God happy with me. But I never internalized that Jesus came to us in our lives to become like him is to be a sent one. Guys, even the Christmas story will come to life when you see that the Bible is a missionary book about a missionary God coming to redeem the world. That Christmas is no longer the cute incarnation story. It's an invasion into the, the gates of hell will not overcome. This baby has invaded the world as a sent one. That God sent him into the world. That he would grow up and do what? He would do what Genesis chapter 3 said. He would crush the head of the serpent. He is a sent one. And to become like him is to be a sent one who crushes the head of the enemy. Who the gates of hell tremble. Are you a dangerous follower of Jesus? Or not? Are you just working on your holiness, which you should? But Jesus is showing us the missionary nature of an eternal triune God, and we gotta get that in our bloodstream. So in other words, when we tell you to live sent, we're not being a crazy church that's really on mission. We're telling you to live like Jesus. You need to hear that. We're telling you, this is what Jesus did. You should do it too. And you're like, oh, that's not my spiritual gift. No, this is what it means to be like him. It's just what it means to be like him. Number two, Christology, now missiology, God is relentlessly seeking to save sinners and restore the world. That's what Matthew 28 shows. It's missiology. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God is relentlessly seeking to save sinners and restore the world? We've got to read scripture like that, that this is God relentlessly doing this. And Jesus is so clear in our partnership because he's, he says this to the disciples at one point. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So in other words, there has never been a harvest issue with Jesus. There's always been a worker issue with Jesus. Never has he been like, guys, I'm really struggling with the harvest. He's like, trust me, I'm, I'm going to build a church. I'm killing it in the harvest. I just wish more people in my church would come and work with me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to build the church. And so God's sovereignty and mission and this is theological, this is for me, theological, like when I see God's sovereignty and mission, it doesn't make me want to be a frozen chosen who sits back and does nothing. It makes me want to run to the front lines of mission knowing that, the, that it will work. So in other words, when you go into the nations to share the gospel in places where it's never been, you don't cross your fingers and hope it goes well. You trust that God has gone before you and you are just partnering with him in his work. He's relentlessly seeking and saving the lost. And number three, because of that, Christology, missiology, now we're to ecclesiology, mission is the church's organizing principle. Mission is the organizing principle of the church. Now, this is going to push on us. Be kind to me. I'm the new guy. But some of you think worship is the reason we gather. You think worship is the organizing principle. Some of you think community is the organizing principle. And if we offend the community thing, you'll, you'll leave. 
Some of you think is the evangelism is the organizing. We're here to share the gospel. Some of you think Bible study is the organizing principle, and we don't do enough Bible study, so that's frustrating. By, by the way, community worship, all those are amazing. We do those things. But all of those are not the reason we gather. An organizing principle is a core assumption in which everything else orbits. The sun is the organizing principle of our galaxy. All the planets go around the sun. Now, what the organizing principle of the church is, is the Christ who has given us a mission, and now we organize around that mission. So everything we do asks the question, how does this help us make disciples of all nations? How does this help us take on the gates of hell so they will not overcome the work that God has asked for? How does this help us live as sent ones? It's a worldview that changes every thought you have about the church. But most American Christians do not think the Great Commission applies to them. They only think that it's for the special people. Guys, I grew up around here. I went to summer camps. And on Thursday night was the Great Commission night where the missionaries were called out of the crowd. I stood up. I cried. I went down front and kneeled and cried. And I remember one of my best friends growing up really felt called to be a football coach. Loved football. Loved Jesus. Wanted to coach. Never stood up. Never went forward and cried. And they never had a special night at church for a football coach who wanted to make disciples. You only had a special night at church for missionary kids who want to make disciples. And that is a misunderstanding of Matthew 28. A better understanding is the pastor should have said, hey, this is for everybody. Wherever you find yourself, stand up and cry. Let's go. That, that's, that's not what we did. We didn't, we didn't do that. You had to feel called. And subtly, we have crafted a Jesus, because of that, we've crafted a Jesus that wouldn't call us to a hard place. We, we've crafted a Jesus that, that would really never call you to be uncomfortable. Certainly not foolish, which 1 Corinthians 1 says the message of the cross is foolishness. But, but we've crafted a Jesus that would never make us look foolish. We're professionals. And we've crafted a Jesus that ultimately we can overlay him on a life we already chose. And it looks like many of us just regular, nice, middle-class American Jesus. And that is a temptation that the enemy is inviting you into. Live a regular, middle-class, upper-class life and just add Jesus on top of it. It's no big deal. And that's the subtlety that the enemy offers us. So, so here's a better understanding. That the Great Commission is not a calling. It, the Great Commission is not even a command. The Great Commission is a declaration of your identity. It's who you are. So you go, oh, is it a calling? Am I commanded to do it? No, it's, it's just who you are. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Declaration of identity. He doesn't say, and I'm going to call some of you to be my witnesses, or, you know, you guys better ratchet it up. I'm commanding you to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to light the flame of the church, and your identity and declaration is that you will go, and you will share, and it will work, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And there is an understanding in the Great Commission that where disciples go, a widening of the gospel goes. Where disciples go, a widening of witness goes. The Holy Spirit does that through us. It's expected of us that this is what happens in sequence when we get Jesus right and we worship Jesus rightly and we allow Jesus to invite us and challenge us to, to become who he is. Then we get mission right. Then we get ecclesiology right. Then we walk in the world under a new identity as a saved one who's been sent. 
Now, I know, again, guys, that this is new to me, and this is in the Bible, so I'm not teaching. You look for yourself. T- take this home. Pray about this. It'll mess you up. It's messed me up. I'm like, wish it wasn't so. There's, other, there's easier ways to do this. But this is here. And I actually think it's in you. I think if the Holy Spirit's in you, it's in you. Um, I, I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago uh, a mission organization president posted a tweet. He says, for the last four years, we have spent uh, time in this country. He couldn't even name the country. He said, learning the language of these people so that we could share the gospel with this group in Southeast Asia. And he said, for the first time this week, we are going to share the gospel story with this group in their native language. And he said, would you pray with us? And he posted this photo. I have a photo of this. This is what he posted on Twitter. And guys, my heart started burning. Like when I prayed, I felt it. I think if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and you hear someone say, hey, would you pray for the first time ever in this people's language? They're going to hear the gospel. And you see that on your Twitter feed right next to all the politics and all the chaos, all of a sudden, like, the world makes sense and your heart burns. And you're like, God, would you supernaturally do amongst them what you've been doing in your word? That, and then you realize the Great Commission isn't a calling, it's an identity. We all do this. And yes, some are uniquely gifted to go and learn language. If you are here and you are good at language, maybe there is an opportunity for you to go somewhere and share the gospel in places that's never been heard. Last week, we gave money to a mom for Mother's Day. We gave her a gift who's serving amongst an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. Uh, last Sunday night, I, I talked to her husband for like an hour and a half on FaceTime. Guys, this guy, they went to Papua New Guinea, and they said they heard about a tribe that was somewhere away. They had to hike like 13 hours to find a tribe, and then they just showed up not knowing anyone, just hoping they wouldn't get killed. How in the world do you hike 13 hours to a group of people you've never even known existed and hope they don't kill you? Because you know something about Jesus that they don't know, and it it has to go. It has to go. We're compelled. It's in us. The Holy Spirit's in us. But I would would say this as, as we move into this last piece. The world around us is changing, but the mission of the church hasn't changed. And you feel that, though. You feel it. The world around us is changing. It is less receptive to the message, but the message and the mission has not changed. Let me illustrate. In the early 1950s, five college students felt God calling them to be missionaries. I have a photo of them. It's a guy named Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley and Pete Fleming and Roger Yearling. So you've heard of these guys, maybe. If you've watched Into the Spear, if you've ever read Elizabeth Elliott, that was her first husband. And they felt called to go to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. But the Aka Indians had already killed several shell workers who tried to go there and look for oil. And, and these guys heard that story and they said, we got to go. And their church was telling them not to go. Their professors in college were telling them not to go. There was a lot of people saying, you shouldn't do that. You'd be much more suited here in North America using your gifts. And Nate Sain has this quote where he says this. He says, as we weigh the future and seek the will of God... Does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for a few savages? Catch that? They're saying you shouldn't die for them. And it's like, does it seem right? It's a good question. And he says, during the last war, World War II, we were taught that to obtain our objective, we had, be, we had to be willing to be expendable. Yet when the Lord Jesus asks us to pay this price for world evangelization, we often do not answer him a word. 
When the president said, go fight for your country, we all signed up. But when King Jesus says, lay down your life for the savages, we don't want to talk to King Jesus. And so on January 8th, 1956, all five of these men went forward to engage the Aka Indians. And the Akas ultimately killed them. And they were later found with their bodies in the river. They had been lanced to death in the gospel. or The Bible, tra- the Bible and gospel tracts were tied to their bodies. But listen, in this time... Of, of America, these five guys ended up on the cover of Life magazine. And generally, there's, there's photos. This is them in Life magazine. Generally, the, the, the response and the pushback was positive that these, these were sacrificial men doing something heroic. And we know of them because of what they did. Now, fast forward 62 years later, there's a young man, man named John Allen Cho, You might remember this. This was just three years ago. On November 17th, 2008, John Allen Cho paddled his kayak towards the beaches of North Sentinel Island. You remember this? This was was recently. He had gone through four years of rigorous training, learning medical education about this tribe. He had been vaccinated and quarantined, and he had done language classes. He had spent years planning and praying and riding his canoe around trying to engage the Sentinelese people. He had boats that were on the edge of the island where he could pray for them, and they would, they would uh, ride around the island praying. And the night before he was going to paddle to the shore, he wrote in his journal, he, says, he wrote this, you, you guys might think I'm crazy, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. I hope this isn't one of my last notes, but if it is, to God be the glory. I'm watching the sunset and wondering if it will be the last sunset I see before being in the place where the sun never sets. So not long after Cho arrived on the island, hands up, offering peace to these people, the North Sentinelese people shot him with bows and arrows, and onlooking fishermen saw a group of islanders dragging his lifeless body away to be buried. And what's fascinating is that in 1950, America generally viewed what Jim Elliott and Nate Saint did as positive, and they were American martyrs. And they were heroic, and that was good. And 68 years later, John Allen Cho is portrayed in the media as a criminal and a fool who never should have been there. And probably the world's most foremost missiologist named Ed Stetzer, he wrote an article about this. And he said this, and this, this, should, this should press on us as a church. Ed Stetzer in his article wrote this. Imagine an Amish village in Pennsylvania that is kept apart from the rest of American society for 200 years. This village has made it its preference for strict separation clear, and the area authorities honor it with special isolation laws that they faithfully enforce. But then comes a day, however, when NASA believes the village is in the direct line of a small but lethal asteroid impact. Everyone else in the prospective blast zone has been evacuated except the Amish community. Is it ethical to breach their community and warn them? They could have not been more clear that they want to be left alone. But what if a danger impends them, impedes on them, that was beyond their imagination? And what if that danger threatened their very lives? John Allen Cho believed those islanders were in imminent danger of losing the prospect of their eternal lives. And despite the reservations and criticism that some people will maintain as to Cho's methods, how one thinks about John Allen Cho finally comes down to this. Do you believe an asteroid is coming? 
If you don't think so, then it's hard to avoid the unhappy conclusion that despite all of his good intentions and careful preparations, John Allen Cho was a dangerous criminal fool who had no business going. But if you do think an asteroid is coming, however, then it's hard to avoid the conclusion that John Allen Cho is a martyr who laid down his life for King Jesus. So the question, church, is do you believe that an asteroid is coming? I know that feels heavy, but that's where we have to go to get to the heart of this. Do you love your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers? Do you love the ends of the earth so much so do you, that you live as though an asteroid is coming? And you have to believe this. Many believe this to be offensive today. But do you believe that our world needs Jesus and they are in impending danger and you love them? I was moved by a famous uh, Penn and Teller. They're magicians in, in Vegas. And, and Penn is this famous atheist. And after the show, he had a, a Christian guy come to him and give him a Bible and say, Penn, I loved your magic show. I've been following you guys for year, years and I pray for you. I just want you to know Jesus loves you and here's a Bible. I've underlined some verses that mean a lot to me. And he handed him that. And Penn was moved by his, like a video, like a YouTube channel. And Penn talks about this. And he said, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I'm an atheist. I don't want to be a Christian. He said, but I do tell you what, if you believe in Jesus and you don't proselytize, which means share the gospel, he says, then how, how much do you have to hate me if you believe a bus is coming for me and you don't tell me the bus is coming? Not even a follower of Jesus. Move to tears. He's saying, I don't believe what that guy had to say, but at least he loved me enough to say something. At least he loved me enough to look foolish. Because listen, church, a privatized faith in Jesus is biblically inconceivable. A privatized, thank you, Lord, you saved me. I will now be spending my life privately praying to you, privately reading my Bible, privately going to church on Sunday. And then when I get to the end, I, I'm going to get into heaven. Jesus is too worthy and the world is too lost. And we don't have time to keep this to ourselves. We have a Christ who has saved us to send us. We have a mission to take this to the ends of the earth. And we are going to organize our church in a way that honors that. And that's what God's given us. So really practically, here's what we're prayerfully considering as a church. We are prayerfully considering. And I say this open-handedly. We invite you to pray with us. We invite you to talk to us about this. Prayerfully considering. Long game. Stay with me. I'm going to say it one more time. Prayerfully considering. Planting a church at UTSA. Because right there, 35,000 college students prayerfully considering planting a church at UTSA. Prayerfully considering engaging three unreached people groups that we would give to, we would go to, we would we'd care about translating the Bible in their language. We would root ourselves there. We'd send trips there. We'd send money there. We'd give our lives to saying, God, the Rim Church, we gave our lives to taking names off of the list. We care about that. Prayerfully considering a local marketplace hub for ministry and mission. Many of you are very gifted in the marketplace. Corporate leaders, what would it look like for us to do something in our city that was for the good of our city, that also had this subversive disciple-making underpinning? But it looked like the good of the city. And I'm only three of the, the way through these, and I know number one didn't really connect with you, but some of you in the room were like, UTSA church plan. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. And number two, you're like, Man, UPGs, like, why did my heart hit differently right there? And some of you, one, two, didn't really land, but you hear Marketplace Hub for Ministry and Mission, you're like, I've actually been thinking about that. 
I've actually been, like, the Lord has kind of been doing that in me. Like, can I have a conversation? What would that look like? And we have apostolic imagination where we dream together about what that would look like. And then fourth, we serve the marginalized locally and regionally. What would it look like for us to engage in the refugee community? What would it look like for us to do that? Those are the things we're prayerfully considering based on who Jesus is and the mission he's given us as a church. We're going to organize in such a way that we can, have a, we can make a difference in these things. And so now I want to give you the classic 120 seconds to pray. But I want us to leave that on the screen. And I want you to pray. God, is there something in that that I could, I could be connected to, I could pray for, I could process? This doesn't mean we're changing what you do in house church. That's normal. It doesn't mean we're changing disciple making. Those are normal things. These are things we're prayerfully considering moving forward in the future. And we're in this together. So what if you said, God, which one of those things could I leverage my life towards? I could leverage my gifts towards. Which one of those things could I be equipped to go and do? So I want to invite you to pray for that. And then after that, we're going to put my phone number on the screen and you're going to get to text me. I'm the pastor of missions, so I'm going to help us. Oh, I'm, I'm pot committed. I got skin in the game. This isn't just a speech right here. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm for this. I'm desperate to see this happen. And I want you to text me and say you want to be involved in something. And then over the next month or so, I want to buy you coffee and I want to talk to you about it. And I want us to do this together. So you guys take some time to pray about where God might be leading you in these four areas. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.